Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What is the perfect story? Does it exist? Is there a tangible formula? Has the perfect story ever been told? And if so, are we simply trying to retell the story over and over? This podcast is called The Midnight Myth. And somewhere between the black of night and the break of dawn, there is a story, and it's perfect. My name is Derek Jones. And my name is Laurel Hostack. Welcome to The Midnight Myth. Welcome back to the Midnight Myth, everybody's favorite history, mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects bubble up into our popular storytelling podcast. As always, I am very excited to be back here with my lovely wife, Laurel, who has our son, Arthur, sleeping in her arms, who is 10 weeks old today. You may, dear Midnight Myth listeners, hear a goo-goo-ga-ga at some point, We'll see. He may sleep the whole episode. We don't know. He may even age himself up halfway through and start throwing in his own analysis. This is true. I would not be surprised if Arthur grows up to be a Midnight Myth podcaster. Yeah. All right. So that's a little teaser to what we are talking about. We are going to be discussing the MCU first foray into the realm of streaming television, WandaVision. WandaVision. And we're really excited to talk about it. You know, we used to, when we first started the podcast, we used to try to grab what the popular subject was in particular in the online geek community. And we used to try to follow those trends. And somewhere about maybe a year and a half into the podcast, I don't know, we've been doing this for a while now, we really debated whether that was the right strategy or not. And we decided... We were forcing conversations that we didn't really want to have. So we threw out the playbook, reinvented the midnight myth, and decided we were going to simply discuss what we wanted to talk about, when we wanted to talk about it. And we found, A, our podcast was a lot more fun for us to do, and B, we actually grew the podcast and got more listeners. Yeah, by not chasing the trends. And uh, then lastly, we just really fell back in love with the entire hobby of podcasting. It was a point where we were close to maybe hanging it up and no longer doing it. All this is to say, it's been a while since there's something happening right now where Laurel and I were like, we really want to talk about this hot new popular culture sensation. And that is WandaVision. We were very inspired to talk about it and think there's a lot of midnight myth things that we can pick out of it. And we're also fans of the MCU. I know I have been critical of them both on the podcast and on my Twitter when I think it's worthwhile. But generally speaking, I think the MCU is a ton of fun. And here we have a new installment of it, a new format. We have characters we've seen before, but not really seen in the way we are watching them on the show. We also have brand new characters. And I got to tell you, I am really, really pumped up for this one. Me too. I have to say, uh, WandaVision is probably one of my favorite things that the MCU has done and has kind of reinvigorated my excitement about the Marvel Cinematic Universe in general. Uh, So I'm also really excited to talk about it. It's a very different foray into a new medium for them, and it is a risky, fun, uh, exciting new element that they're introducing to the universe. So yeah, I think think this is going to be great. 
And all that to say, if you haven't seen all episodes of WandaVision, um, we will spoil it. It did Heavy just come spoilers, out. Yeah. yeah. And you really want to see the ride. You don't want us to spoil it for you. So consider this your spoiler wall. But before we get too deep into it, Laurel, do your thing. Yeah, so my thing is just we would love to hear from you. We are here just waiting for you to reach out. And the best place to do so is on Twitter. We're at The Midnight Myth on Twitter. We're on Facebook and on Instagram at Midnight Myth Podcast. We're also on the web at MidnightMyth.com where there's extra content and blogs. Uh, Also on that website, you can find a link to our Patreon page and our merch store if you were interested in supporting us financially. Uh, But if you don't have money to spare right now, you're not looking to spend your stimulus checks uh, supporting an indie podcast, you can also help us out by spending no money at all. The best thing you can do costs you nothing. It's just to leave us a five-star rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And those help us get out there, help us find new fans and audience members. It also just feels great to know that you like what we're doing. So please consider leaving us a review if you have the time. Awesome. On with the show. Yeah. Oh, fellow travelers on the path of the beam. Steve and I are reading insomnia. We now have a wheel of Ka Twitter. Yeah. That's the big news this week. We have social media for the wheel of Ka. So if you like us and you like what we're doing and you're a fan of Stephen King, follow the wheel of Ka on Twitter. If you're dialoguing with the at wheel of Ka. I don't know if that's the Twitter handle. That's it, yeah. It is, okay. If you're dialoguing with it, just know you're talking to Steve. You won't be talking to me. I can barely manage my own Twitter, let alone two. <laughs> and then they're also on Instagram at The Wheel of Ka. So do go and follow those uh, social media accounts for extra updates. We'll try and share those updates too from The Midnight Myth. Uh, but there is going to be lots of new content and you can always engage with the podcast in new ways. And grab a copy of Insomnia, read along. Um, We'll update you on Twitter when we're ready to record, and we'll have an Insomnia episode pretty soon. Woohoo! Speaking of insomnia, how long has it been since you had a full night's sleep, Derek? A long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's worse for you than it is for me. Yeah, that's true. By far. I get more sleep than you do, because the baby just needs his mommy at 3 a.m. Yes, he does. Anyway, on with WandaVision. It's a nine episode. They're roughly like 30 to 45 minute long episodes. So I'm not going to recap all of them, but just a really brief recap. The first three episodes are mock sitcom styles where we see the character Wanda from the Avengers with the character Vision, who we know was killed by Thanos in Infinity War, with lots of creepy, weird occurrences happening, leaving us to wonder why is Vision alive? Where is Wanda right now? And what is happening? Come to find out that Wanda, in her grief, created this thing called the Hex. And the Hex siphoned off a town in New Jersey, and Wanda has been projecting a television show, and she has resurrected a new vision as a character in this show. All of the people in the town that were there at the time the Hex was formed are under the mental domination of Wanda as she is scripting them as a grief and coping mechanism for the fact that Vision has died. We also get introduced to a new organization that is sort of like S.H.I.E.L.D. called S.W.O.R.D. And S.W.O.R.D. has been trying to reconstruct the Vision and turn him into a sentient weapon, as well as they're trying to infiltrate the Hex and to stop Wanda. Enter the character, um, oh my god, Marsha Rambo? No. Monica Rambo. Monica Rambo, brain totally blanked whose body chemistry gets changed by the Hex and becomes a superhero. All of the shenanigans go down when we learn there is another witch inside the Hex named Agatha, who has been trying to puncture the illusion to wander, to find out how Wanda has created this. There is a gigantic magical battle between Agatha and between Wanda, in which Wanda takes her mantle as the Scarlet Witch, who can invoke chaos magic, and has been able to do so, we learn, from the time that she was a child. We also get to see a reformed Vision, um, presumably powered by a Stark arc reactor, who enters into the Hex and battles with the Hex version of Vision, in which it culminates in a philosophical debate where the Vision in the Hex restores the memories of the rebuilt Vision of Sword, who leaves saying, I am the Vision. The show concludes with Wanda bringing down the Hex freeing the citizens of Westview, coping with the fact that, yes, Vision has died and she needs to move on, 
And the end credit scene has Wanda studying the book of magic that she got called the Darkhold from Agatha, who she traps and imprisons in her character form in Westview in perpetuity. And that's the show. Woo, excellent recap. You had a lot to get in there, and I think you nailed it. There's lots of other stuff. There's the Pietro fake out. Oh, yeah, Ralph Boner. There's the kids that Wanda creates. Yep. There's there's so much to discuss and to talk about in this one. Um, in general, we usually start these conversations with does it hold up? The show literally just ended, so does it hold up doesn't feel like the right conversational starter. So I want to ask two questions of you, Laurel, to begin with and answer them in any way you so choose. One, why do you think the show is as popular as it was? And two, what do you think the show means more broadly for the MCU going forward? Well, the popularity question, I think there's a lot of ways to answer that. For one, uh, it's been a long time since we had a Marvel property released. Uh, we got used to a very, very uh, consistent schedule of having a Marvel Cinematic Universe movie every couple of months, and then pretty much every year, like a really big Marvel movie. And we did not get the Black Widow release that we thought we were going to get because obviously the entire world has shut down and movie theaters have shut down. So we are thirsty for content from this universe that we have invested the last decade in. So I think absolutely this was going to be popular no matter what, uh, because everyone wants to be back into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. However, I think there's more to it than that. I think the fact that Marvel has taken some risks and done something really different uh, that they're different than what they have usually made, which sometimes can fall into some kind of cookie cutter uh, formed right within the the template uh, stuff. Their content can feel a little stale after a little while. I'm, you know, criticizing it, even though I do love it. But WandaVision, I think, steps out of that strung us all along with a really banging mystery. We were all really invested in figuring out what was going on here. And then at the end of the day, it was extremely well-written and extremely well-executed. I think that the popularity can really go hand-in-hand with the quality of this show. I have to say, Wanda and Vision are two characters who I could not have cared less about in the MCU leading up to this. And their love story did not work for me in the movies. The two characters, the actors did not have a whole lot of chemistry on screen. There's a really big age difference. And it was always just a little weird to me to watch that love story blossom on screen. But somehow, somehow we're able to get this TV show where I am sobbing at the end when they say we've said goodbye before. So it stands to reason we'll say hello again. I'm tearing up just thinking about it. So the work that they put in with this long format and with the risk and the comedy and the differing styles created a, a, a world where these two characters could truly blossom in their chemistry, in their love, and in their charisma on screen. I think Elizabeth Olsen has just made leaps and bounds as an actor, and everybody in this show is performing on a really high level. So I think it's popular because we wanted MCU content, and I think it stayed popular because it's just really good. What was the next question that you asked? Hold on, let me respond, and then I'll ask you yeah, the next please. question. Because I wanted to just comment, A, I agree with every single point. I would like to also add a few points, if you'll permit me. Yeah. I would like to add that, well, to the point of the chemistry between Wanda and Vision, they go from trying to kill each other in Civil War to being in love in Infinity War. And it just doesn't make any sense. And their romance is cut short in Infinity War when they get attacked by Thanos' goons. So there's very little time for Wanda and Vision to actually develop a romantic connection. And that's part of the grandness and scope of the storytelling that certain characters do get swept over. And it's unavoidable when you have a movie as big as Infinity War or as Endgame, and you have a franchise as huge as the MCU. What this television format allows is to slow it down, is to really let the show simmer. One of the strengths of it is that it takes three episodes, 100% serious sitcom. That is patient storytelling. Now, to some, that was too patient. I know some folks who... Yeah, there were people who were really frustrated. ...who wanted Marvel, who wanted to see explosions and superhero landings and flying and magic. 
And we're like, what is this? But yeah, for instead me, they got Dick Van Dyke and Bewitched. For me, the I the commitment to the slowness of the mystery and their ability to really establish made me so hungry. Like, what is this? What's happening? I need to know all of the answers. And it really gripped me in. I also think in a pandemic world in which the only way we are communicating with the outside world, the primary way that we are communicating with the outside world is vis-a-vis screens. We are living in a reality created by screens and we are trapped in our own homes for our own safety. That is exactly the grief that Wanda has created. A world of screens where the only ways that we can cope is through the lens of either a smart device, computer, or television. And the only realities that we see that we can connect to get synthesized and get produced to us in the forms of bits of information. The pandemic has created Westviews all over the world. And we are living through isolation. We are losing loved ones Often we are not able to touch or hug them as we say goodbye. And here we have a character who can't say goodbye to her loved one. And the only recourse she has to cope with it is through the medium of television. And I think there is something very resonant in the emotional journey of Wanda in this show that to me connects with my pandemic experience in a way that I'm sure was not intentional, I don't think I'm pretty certain they started this show well before the pandemic was supposed to happen, but the timing of what we're going through in the world and what this show is going through and the way that they overlap is a, just a right show for the right time. And I think even if you're not consciously experiencing the grief of the pandemic, you're experiencing the grief of the pandemic in one way or another And some of us are denying that it's real. Some of us are crumbling under the weight of it. Some of us are getting sick because of it and our lives are being transformed. Very much the hex and the pandemic seem to be a a perfect and unintentional metaphor. I think that's a really good point. And that's what a lot of media has been doing to us over the past year. Uh, You know, we've spent this past year podcasting about Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter and Jaws and things that were created years and years ago or decades ago in many cases. And we have looked at them through the lens of the fact that we're stuck in our houses and we're experiencing collective grief and trauma. You just heard a sigh from Arthur because he's he's also experiencing that collective grief and trauma. Uh, So I think we have looked at everything through that lens, but then to have new content come out that pings those heartstrings so accurately uh, is is another reason why it took hold of people in the way that it did. Second question, what do you think WandaVision, its success, its narrative, what do you think it means for the MCU going forward? Well, one thing that I hope is that they take the success of WandaVision and they say, we can take more risks. We can do more stuff that's really bonkers and weird and out of this world. You know that this is going to lead into things like Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness and Spider-Man No Way Home, these uh, multiverse-driven narratives that will slot into the MCU. I think we'll see more of Wanda. We'll see her come more into herself, and I'm excited for that character to really grow and really become a compelling part of the universe. But my hope is that it shows Marvel and, you know, so, some things over the past few years have shown Marvel that they can take more risks, like hiring Taika Waititi and Ryan Coogler and, uh, you know, directors who have a little bit louder of a voice than, you know, some of their standard fare. So I hope that it, it shows them that they can do weird and wonderful stuff and that they can do weird and wonderful stuff in a variety of media. I agree with that. I also would like to add, I really appreciated the use of magic in WandaVision. Wanda's character up until this point, her powers were associated with interactions and Hydra experiments with the Mind Stone. They were fundamentally scientific, science fiction-y in nature. And in this, we recalibrate her as a magic user. And I thought, personal opinion, that Doctor Strange 
and how the sorcerers utilize magic in the MCU has been a bit of a letdown for me. Sure, yeah. I look at, and I don't think they're bad, and if you're a fan of it, it's not to say you're wrong, but I look at them more like warrior magical monks than I do magic users in a more fantasy sense because Doctor Strange moves his hands, he gets you know, these yellow things and shields. And then he and his fellow wizards and sorcerers go and they use karate and beat everybody up. And then they will use magical items. And that's they're They more like warrior monks than a wizard or a witch in a Harry Potter, Lord of the Ringsian sense. Yeah, sure. And in this, we see Wanda and Agnes full on embracing magic as the core of their powers and the magic and how they use magic as the two magic users is directly related to the characters, their strengths, and their weaknesses. So Wanda's weakness is that she, A, isn't even aware that she is a witch, isn't aware that her powers are magical in nature, and it's just raw, uncontrolled creation and destruction meeting at the head. Whereas Agnes is a trained witch who casts spells who knows the lore, who uses books, who uses runes, and is in that incredibly powerful. As Agnes as the learned witch versus the raw magic user. And those two magical styles have to do with their characters. Agnes is very cunning. She's very clever. She's kind of a trickster. She's manipulative. And she's trying to steal this magic from Wanda the whole time versus Wanda who is repressing and suppressing more on that later, her grief and her trauma. And in that she has lost complete control over her powers. And when Wanda's character comes full circle, when she is able to proclaim, you can't tell me what I am to Agnes, when she's able to say goodbye to vision, when she's able to tear down the hex and walk away is the point where she becomes her character becomes the balance of both. She is now raw magic. She is raw power. She is chaos, but she now has a book and she's going to use spells. And the first spell she uses, the one that she does to ultimately defeat Agnes is copying the runes and the spell of in a given space with these runes, only one witch's magic can work. She ends up taking and learning from Agnes and then turning her magic on her and emerges as now the Scarlet Witch. Would you say if they were D&D classes that Agatha is like a wizard class and uh, Wanda is a sorcerer class? Correct. Yeah. In D&D terms, that would be, that's how I would describe yeah. it. Yeah. I also love, you know, a lot of us were kind of waiting with bated breath for a big Mephisto reveal or a, you know, a, a greater villain pulling the strings. And I'm kind of happy that that wasn't the case, that we ended up actually having two really powerful women vying it out for greater power. I totally agree with that. And I am super excited to see magic going forward in the MCU. I really want them to allow magic to be weird and powerful and uncontained and controlled and all of the bizarreness that you see in magic and what magic can mean. So I'm very excited for this character, the role of magic. I'm excited to see Doctor Strange now, even though I haven't seen a trailer and I didn't think the first Doctor Strange movie was particularly good. It's one of the lower rated MCU movies, in my opinion. I'm really excited to see the Sorcerer Supreme and the Scarlet Witch traveling through the multiverse. And I hope they allow that movie all of the weirdness that they allowed in WandaVision. Agreed. Let's turn our eye to some analysis. We hit on a few things. The overarching theme, I think, in all of the episodes, especially looking backwards, is grief. I want to talk a little bit about grief, though I'm not an expert on this, and some of the psychological elements we see in this story and how they relate to the character Wanda. So first, I'd like to read the definition of grief. Of grief, pardon me. This is according to the American Psychological Association Dic Dictionary. Grief is quote the anguish experienced after significant loss, usually the death of a beloved person. Grief is often distinguished from bereavement and mourning. Not all bereavement results in a strong grief response, and not all grief is given public expression. Grief often includes psychological distress 
separation anxiety, confusion, yearning, obsessive dwelling on the past, and apprehension about the future. Intense grief can become a life-threatening through the disruption of the immune system, self-neglect, and suicidal thoughts. Grief may also take the form of regret for something lost, remorse for something done, or sorrow for a mishap to oneself. End quote. A few things about that definition. One, I think we can safely say that Wanda is going through psychological distress, obsessive dwelling on the past, apprehension of the future. I think all of those things are true. The life-threatening, the disruption of the immune system, self-neglect, all of those things we are seeing Wanda go through. So what is the grief that Wanda is experiencing? How is it related through the show? Mostly this comes through in episode eight, the second to last episode, where Agnes walks Wanda through her memories. Agnes has been trying to puncture the illusion that Wanda has cast the entire time. She does this many ways. One way is that she conjures a fake brother and gives him the powers of the real uh, Pietro. And what does Pietro do? He's like, how'd you do this? Where's your accent? I can't believe I'm back alive. And he is trying to puncture the illusion of the show. The reason Agnes is trying to puncture the illusion to the, the show WandaVision is that Agnes is trying to steal the chaos magic. But I'd like to offer a different type of interpretation. Consider Agnes not as the antagonist in this, but the therapist. And what do I mean by that? So there are two different defense mechanisms defined by Sigmund Freud that people can use in response to traumatic events. Grief is and can be understood as a traumatic event. The first is suppression. Suppression is the conscious pushing down of bad feelings or memories. When you suppress something, you're saying, I know this happened, but I don't want to confront it. For example, I know my parents got blown up by Tony Stark and the Stark weapon, and I used magic to stop that other bomb from exploding, but I'm just going to watch the Dick Van Dyke show, and I'm not going to actually deal with it. Suppression is a conscious attempt to, to avoid trauma. Then there is repression. Repression is an unconscious attempt to avoid trauma. According to Sigmund Freud, and now this is definitely debated and not considered um, 100% accurate, but I do think applies to the character, Wanda, maybe not to how the human mind actually works, is that the human mind is like an iceberg. We, our ego, the thing we define as ourselves is the tip of the iceberg. It is what is above the water. But below the iceberg is a gigantic structure that we don't see and we don't interact with. That is where repression lies. The mind shields painful trauma from itself, pushes it into the unconscious, and in the unconscious, there it remains because the ego is not ready and cannot confront it. The purpose of psychoanalysis, according to Freud, is to take the repressed memory from the unconscious to the conscious. And the reason for this is when the memories are repressed, they will manifest themselves in unknown and unaccountable ways. What do we see here in Wanda? And let's assume that episode eight is the start and not the second to last episode. We see that Wanda, once she realized Vision is dead, and that she cannot bury his body, and she cannot honor him in the way that she needs to in order to grieve, she is moving from suppression to repression. She has been suppressing her grief, and she's been doing this her whole life. She's suppressed her magic. She has suppressed the death of her parents. She has suppressed the death of her brother, and she has been suppressing the death of vision. And this suppression has not helped her grieve, right? So according to psychological uh, Psychology Today, great website, quote, in fact, attempts to suppress or deny grief are just as likely to prolong the process while also demanding additional emotional effort, end quote. Now, once she has tried to suppress the grief one last time, she goes to Westview and then her ego does the only thing it can do. 
Because she can no longer properly suppress the grief, she moves into full repression. She pushes everything down into her unconscious mind, and as an intensely powerful magic user, she creates the hex. And the hex is the repression manifest. It is so powerful, not only does she repress her own life, she represses the lives of everybody in the town. She represses the lives of the neighboring town who wipes Westview from their memory. And she creates a pocket synthetic reality designed to repress the grief. And what does it do? It brings back the loved one that she lost. It erases the trauma of Vision's death completely by resurrecting him in this synthetic reality. I think that's excellent. That's incredible analysis. And you mentioned, you know, Agnes, Agatha serving as a therapist, and I'm sure you'll have more to say about that. But I do think it's also interesting to meditate on the fact that Wanda's grief is incredibly productive. She's doing tremendous harm to the people of Westview, but she also uses her grief as a creative act, as a creative force. I think one of the most moving images of the whole show was her uh, in the empty foundation of the house that she and Vision were supposed to grow old in, letting her grief pour out of her as chaos magic and completely rewriting this town and creating the Vision out of nothing. I thought that was incredibly beautiful. I've got goosebumps as I'm describing it. And when Agatha steps in and takes her through the memories, she stops being a participant in the repression of the grief and becomes an observer of the repression of the grief, which I think is a huge part of how the uh, television show of how Westview can serve not just as a vehicle for her repression, but also the thing that saves her. Because once she steps out and observes what she's been doing, she's able to actually see the patterns and use it to overcome the grief. And in every phase of her trauma that we go through, phase one, the death of her parents and the emergence of her magical power, what is there to help her suppress the grief? The television. Phase two, she's in Hydra. She's interacting with the Mind Stone. She's allowing Hydra to turn her into a living weapon. And she is isolated. She is cold. And where is she? What is she doing? She's suppressing the trauma that led her there the trauma of interacting with the Mind Stone, with the television. Then lastly, after the death of Pietro, she is then again suppressing the grief of Pietro's death by doing what? Watching the television. And this is where Vision comes in, and Vision allows her to actually start to grieve by reframing her grief as just another form of love. Love persevering. One of the best lines. What is grief if not love persevering? So her love of vision is born of her grief and her attempts to suppress her grief. When vision dies and she is not allowed to suppress, when she is no longer able to just sit and watch a TV show, when she moves from suppression to repression, when she moves from doing a healthier form of a defense mechanism to, I would argue, from the perspective of psychoanalysis, a, a full psychological neurosis, what does she create? The very thing that she used to suppress grief all along. She creates a TV show. And in this TV show, we can understand the metaphor that we cannot understand and process our grief through the television through screens. We are not able to fully ourselves as audience members. We are not able to grieve if all we do is suppress our emotions in the television. A television show is telling us not to watch TV. It is so interesting and such a complicated form of media analysis that it blows my mind. But back to Agnes, who is absolutely the stereotypical I wouldn't say stereotypical, wrong word. She's absolutely the antagonist of the show. But if we understand her as the therapist, she senses the person in trauma. She comes to that person and she is taking the repressed memories and she is pushing them to the, sur to the surface. Even the act of killing the dog, which is terrible, she murders a dog, allows Wanda the opportunity 
to tell her children the very lesson she needs to learn, which is you have to feel the grief. You cannot just use magic and outgrow it. You have to actually confront it. She's teaching her children the lesson she herself needs to learn, and by the end does. And though, yes, there's a great battle between Agnes and between the Scarlet Witch, at the end of the battle, we see a fully self-actualized human. We see the repressed memories re-emerging out of the subconscious, out of the screen, into Scarlet Witch's conscious mind. And because of Agnes's action, she's now able to say goodbye to Vision. She's now allowed the grieving process to fully complete. And what does she do then? She, A, she keeps Agnes alive and says that she will be back. She keeps her therapist's number in her back pocket. <laughs> and B, she goes to a quiet place where she is studying magic, which is another way to say she is studying herself. She even says at the end, I don't understand this power, but I will. She's saying, now that I am allowed to grieve, I'm going to come to terms with my own power. So this was just one step closer to her becoming a more self-actualized individual. In addition to starting a healthy grieving process through the dissolution of her perfect Westview, she also acknowledges and apologizes for the grievous harm she's caused to others, which is another part of trauma reconciliation and grief resolution, right? So when we go through trauma, allowances should be made for those of us who are going through things that are really difficult because we're not fully in control of our actions and we are being driven by greater forces. But that doesn't mean we're not responsible for our actions entirely. So the fact that she comes to the end of this and realizes the harm that she's done to the people of Westview is another really healthy step toward her actualization. Now, yes, and it's important to note that current psychologists do not agree with Sigmund Freud and repression. The current theory on traumatic events is that, you know, you don't repress them. They actually are more ingrained in your mind. For example, if the mind could suppress traumatic events, things like post-traumatic stress disorder probably wouldn't exist. You would just simply repress them and go about your day. But in fact, no, these traumatic events, you end up reliving them. So trauma, they say, is more ingrained in psychological memory rather than repressed. Um, Other things that I learned, and I thought this was fascinating because I wanted to try to apply the lens because we've all heard of the five stages of grief. And I wanted to try to apply that and map that onto the show. But then I realized in researching this, so the five uh, stages of grief were coined by a psychiatrist by the name of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross in 1969. And this is the the idea that there is a template that you go through emotionally in the grieving process. And those five steps are denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And to a certain extent, the first arc of the show, we see denial. We see Wanda denying the grief. She literally says no when things try to puncture the illusion. When vision starts to question the illusion, what do they do? They get angry and they get mad and they fight. She attempts to bargain with herself and attempts to bargain with this world in the Malcolm in the Middle episode, but she's also dealing with depression. And then lastly, she accepts. But here's the thing that I learned. No one in psychology today, similar to repression, thinks this is true, thinks that anyone actually goes through this process because grief is so unique to individuals that you can't just have a step that everyone would go through and eventually get to acceptance. So I thought that was interesting that that is now considered a debunked theory of grief. Yeah, it's a useful template, but yeah, again, I think everyone is so unique and everyone's circumstances of grief, whether they are traumatic or otherwise, uh, really make it impossible to predict how you're going to go through it. And even though suppression and repression are not considered major psychological principles today, I do think we can... We can read that process in Wanda's grief in the show that she does go from suppression to repression. And when she does go to full on repression, the hex is born and Agnes puncturing the hex, forcing her to confront the painful memories is exactly what Wanda needs in order to get over the grief. 
Now, framed in a narrative, there's also the conflict of Agnes being an evil witch who wants to steal her magic, which, after all, it's a superhero show. You gotta have a a supervillain in a superhero show. And I love that they made Agnes's desire to steal the magic linked to Wanda's repressed trauma so that in order for Agnes to steal the magic, Wanda needs to release the magic. In order for Wanda to release the magic, she needs to come to terms with her trauma. And I think that is fantastic writing. Agreed. Absolutely. And fantastic character. And the way magic relates to the character in this is so well done. Everything that Marvel makes that is successful is so because it is heavily character driven. And this is no different. I would love, uh, if you're okay with it, to segue into another reading of the hex. And that's kind of a spiritual reading. And that is kind of the groundwork is laid by this conversation about grief. It's still related to how we process death. Uh, and the reason that I thought about this concept was because in the end of the series finale, as Westview's hex is collapsing, Wanda is saying goodbye to her children. And she says, thank you for choosing me to be your mom, which, ugh, oh my God, I'm crying because I have a little boy now. So I'm feeling that in all of the feels, but it inspired me to think about this Buddhist concept that I'd heard about a few years ago known as the Bardo. And I think that it gives us a little bit of insight into Wanda's experience as well. And the Bardo is interesting. So essentially it's this liminal phase between one life and the next reincarnation as articulated through several Eastern philosophies. It's best known through its articulation in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. If you've seen uh, the final season of Lost, then, and you've seen Damon Lindelof talk about the final season of Lost, then you probably might be familiar with this concept at least a little bit. But part of this process in the Tibetan Book of the Dead is the soul's preparation to enter the next life, including the soul's entry into this hall of couples making love, wherein they choose a family to be born into. So they choose their parents. It's probably better to say that the soul is karmically attracted to one couple based on its previous karma and the conditions it's setting up for the next incarnation. So it's not like you pick out who is, you know, the cutest or who you you want to live with. It's based on the preconditions of your life and what's going to happen in the next one. But the bardo also functions as a transitional phase that assists the dead soul's loved ones in the grieving process, knowing that there is this hall that you enter, this next phase that you enter where you prepare for the next life can be helpful in processing the death of a loved one. And you'll forgive me, I have a newborn and I don't have tons of time to do intense research, so I'm pulling a little bit of stuff from Wikipedia, but I wanted to read this quote from the Wikipedia article about the bardo because it just, it's, it sums it up perfectly. So, quote, used without qualification, bardo is the state of existence intermediate between two lives on earth. According to Tibetan tradition, after death and before one's next birth, when one's consciousness is not connected with a physical body, one experiences a variety of phenomena. For the prepared and appropriately trained individuals, the bardo offers, offers a state of great opportunity for liberation, since transcendental insight may arise with the direct experience of reality. For others, it can become a place of danger, as the karmically created hallucinations can impel one into a less than desirable rebirth. End quote. Whoa. Yeah, so I wanted to bring that in because I think one other way to read this is that Wanda is not just creating something out of her grief. She's creating a synthetic bardo. She is creating a you know pocket reality where she can resurrect vision in this intermediate phase where he is not physically connected to a real synthesoid body. He's made entirely of her magic. But by the end of this show he has essentially reincarnated into a synthesoid body through the white vision and the restoration of those memories. It's also this liminal phase where these hallucinations are produced. Wanda gets children who age themselves up. She gets to reunite with her brother, even though he's been recast, and gets to live out you know, a, a kind of idyllic existence before moving on to her symbolic next life as the Scarlet Witch. So everyone in Westview, uh, you know, gets a chance to participate in these hallucinations that will prepare them for a symbolic new life. Whoa, that's really awesome. I also, can I add something to that? I kind of look at the emergence of 
the birth of the Scarlet Witch is another part of the, the religious and mythic tradition of cycles of life, birth, and death. And I think we, the, the Buddhist tradition that you are speaking for is very much speaking to that cycle, saying that there is a phase of existence called life, it transitions to the phase called death, which then leads to the phase of rebirth. And when we see what Wanda goes through, she does kind of go through a symbolic death and rebirth, especially when Agnes is sucking her literal life force and stealing her magic. We see Wanda look a little shriveled, a little zombie-like, only for her then to come back reborn as the Scarlet Witch. In many ways, we could kind of map her journey as the death of mortalness and the rebirth of godhood. Sure, yeah. One, Wanda creates three living beings in this. Though they only live in this reality, she also creates a reality. So she creates a reality, binds individuals who had free will to that reality, and gives birth through this magic to three living beings, Vision, Hex Vision, we'll say, and her two not-real children. And though these children and everything are bound to this reality as well, this is part of her creation. And then at the end, she becomes the Scarlet Witch, and she taps Agatha and turns her into someone else. She can summon her clothes. She can fly away. She is more powerful than ever. And I was just curious, if she were to be a goddess at this point, what goddess do you think she would be? So my instinct to answer that question, I literally just read a book called Circe by Madeline Miller, which I highly recommend about the kind of origin story and the perspective of the witch from Greek mythology, Circe, who figures heavily into the Odyssey uh, because she is someone who can manipulate reality. She turns men into pigs and imprisons them. She imprisons Odysseus on her island, and she is known for her uh, you know, study of pharmaca or magic, and she is a minor goddess within uh, you know, the, the Greek pantheon. So that's where my instinct puts her. What do you think? Well, Circe is also very much an antagonist. True. I kind of see her as Hera. Interesting. So Hera is the wife of Zeus. Hera was in cultic practices associated with fertility as well as associated with marriage and homeliness. So wives would often sacrifice to Hera in the hopes, or especially young girls would sacrifice to Hera in the hopes that she would bless their marriage with children and a good husband. When Hera's domesticity in the myth is challenged, usually by Zeus's philandering, what does she do? She messes with people's minds, most notably yeah. Hercules. Yeah. She tinkers with his mind and makes him do things he would otherwise not normally do. So there's a, a she is definitely a goddess and she is worshipped as a goddess. But when the domestic life comes under threat, she can be very violent. And vengeful. And very emotional. And sometimes that can lead to unintended consequences and innocent people being hurt. But yet an Olympian goddess, she remains. And the defining characteristic of Hera is, it is very sexist. It is her marriage to Zeus. Yeah. But the defining characteristic of Wanda in this show is her marriage to Vision and her want and desire to create a domestic, perfect, blissful, happy life, one that she will never, ever have, and is, because of her power, probably impossible to have. So she, she many ways, kind of reminds me of Hera. It's not like a one-to-one. -one, no, but it's not, but I think that's great. Fortunately, she is spared the philandering husband in this, but I think that's a really good comparison. But what do we see with Vision? He is wise. He is powerful. He shoots laser bolts from his head. Hey. Just like Zeus, who's wise go. and powerful and shoots thunderbolts from his hand. It's not too dissimilar. If she were, I, I see, I think I like Cersei for the witch aspect, the imprisonment aspect, but Cersei's also a bad guy. Yeah. In the myths. So that's where I'm like, Hera is not a, she's a, Terrible. I mean, all the I mean, Greek she, gods yeah, are she's terrible. She's a vengeful goddess, yeah. but they're all terrible. She's just vengeful because Zeus is the worst. So He is absolutely the worst. Anyway, that was just a fun little interlude. Can we talk a little bit about the vision-on-vision -vision battle and the discussion of the ship of Theseus? I would 
would love to talk about that. I feel like we can't ignore that at the Midnight Myth. No, and one of the reasons we can't ignore that, I'll give you a little personal story here, is that I used the story of the ship of Theseus in our wedding vows when we got married in 2018. Uh, So I used this metaphor of this ship where plank by plank is uh, replaced and the question, the thought experiment of, is this the same ship or is this a different ship as a metaphor for marriage and for relationships? Because as you have a long-term relationship, you have to work on it. You have to replace planks that rot and put in new ones and continue to maintain your relationship. And at the end of it, is it the same love or is it a new love? Does every time I love you, it mean the same thing or does it mean something different? And my answer was the ship is the same and the ship is not the same. So I just thought I'd share that personal story. Absolutely. And I love that personal story. And also when the ship of Theseus came out, that was when I'm like, yeah, we're podcasting. Yeah, we're doing this. They are, they are literally bringing both mythology and philosophy into the uh, WandaVision. And that is so midnight myth. We can't mention it. So let's talk a little bit about it. What is the thought experiment? Where does it come from? How is it used and how do they use it in the show? This philosophical problem is probably pretty ancient, but it came back into prominence by a writer by the name of Thomas Hobbes, who is an Enlightenment European philosopher and responsible for what we call now the social contract theorists. Now, he picked the problem of Theseus, the philosophical problem, from a Roman writer, a technically Greek writer who lived in the Roman Empire by the name of Plutarch. And Plutarch wrote down this thought experiment And then Hobbes really picked it back up. And the central idea is the social contract theorists were part of a big movement that were trying to create and establish the philosophical basis of the individual. And the argument is society has an obligation to enfranchise individuals. And if the society can enfranchise individuals, society will be more prosperous. A lot of things came out of this philosophical movement, modern science, free market enterprise, self-determinative liberalism, also known as democracy, uh, the death of slavery, all come out of this idea that there is an individual that exists in society and society's job is to make sure that individual is free. But before you can say that philosophically society should enfranchise individuals, you have to define what the individual is. What is this unit that society has such an obligation to help? And this thought experiment is one of the ways in which that's created, introduced by Thomas Hobbes, and then completed by John Locke. And the idea is, if we change over time, how can we say we are a contained self? What makes me a self that moves through time? Or as we grow and change, do we become different selves? And the ship of Theseus is the metaphor for the person. As the ship is being rebuilt, as it goes from wood to metal, does it become a different ship? Does it become a different self? The rotted, you know, the rotted wood gets removed, the metal gets replaced, it goes from a wood ship to a metal ship. Is it a new ship? And then similarly, if someone was taking that wood that is being removed and replaced with metal, and then is built and rebuilds the ship of Theseus. Now you have one made of wood called the ship of Theseus, one made of metal. Which one is the actual real self? And another way that this thought experiment comes into play is if you take a child, someone by the age of maybe 10, and you take a picture of a baby, and then you take another picture of someone at the end of their life and ask them, hey, are these the same person? What's that child going to say? No, one's a baby, one's an old person, but yet you can show them the picture of a person as a baby then the picture of them as an elderly person at the end of their life. What creates the self as a contained unit that moves throughout time? How do we have individual identity? This is manifested quite literally in two different visions one which has the original material made by Ultron and then brought to life by Tony Stark by putting Jarvis into Ultron's um, vibranium body powered by the Mind Stone. 
and then another brought into existence out of chaos magic. They have the exact same power set in terms of their abilities. They look quite similar. One has a fake mind stone where the other has a arc reactor. One seems to have free will while the other one is bound by programming. And while they are fighting, the white vision says, I have a directive to kill the vision. And vision says, but I'm not the original vision in which the philosophical battle of wits commences. One of my favorite parts of the whole show is when vision says, and this is how John Locke answers this problem. He says, you don't have your memories, but a synthesoid's memory systems are not so easily wiped. They're being kept from you. May I? He asks permission of the white vision to restore the memories. And upon the completion of the memories being restored, we now have a complete self who declares, I am vision, and then flies away and leaves, who will presumably come back in other installments of the MCU. John Locke argued what makes that baby and that old person the same. It is the power of memory. Memory is the glue which binds the self backwards and forwards through time. Because I can remember who I am and what I was, I can say I am a self which sustains. And this is the exact argument Hex Vision uses on White Vision. And upon the restoration of memory, we now see a self. This is mirrored in Wanda's journey, who the reason that she is trapped in the hex along with everyone else is because, what has she done? She's repressed her memories of trauma. And it's only until she can connect all of those memories together and realize that what she is is in pain, she's able to say, I'm in pain and I cannot morally allow my pain to hurt others. And then she says, I am the Scarlet Witch. She becomes a self. So they both are dealing with the idea of identity as it is linked to memory. And that through the process of memory, then you can unlock and be a self which sustains through time. And in the metaphor of the ship, maybe the rot is the memories. So just like we can't run away from our grief, we can't age ourselves out of it, we can't escape it, we need the painful memories as much as we need the good ones. We need the trauma. We need to acknowledge the trauma. We need to acknowledge the bad stuff and the rot in order to maintain ourselves over time. Now, here's where it gets more complicated because I'm not sure this actually answers the metaphysical identity problem of Theseus' ship. Sure. And I will tell you why. What happens when you don't have access to your memories? What can happen? One, you could sustain brain damage. Consider the movie Memento, where the character is not able to form new memories. Consider different diseases that can affect the mind, such as Alzheimer's, in which there are memories there, but they are not connected. Consider the case of someone in a coma who is no longer has their brain functioning, has biological processes, but the brain itself is not allowing memories. What happens when we are disconnected from our memories? Does the self cease to be a contained unit that moves throughout time? And I don't think John Locke's answer, the answer that we see with vision, can sustain. What happens if the synthesoid's memories were not there? If vision, hex vision, touches the white vision to restore the memories only to find that the memories have in fact been wiped, then is white vision less of a vision? Whew, I mean, this gets into huge questions of consciousness and materialism that are probably best saved for another podcast, but excellent questions that you're asking here. And it's still a philosophical problem that we can rest with and we can debate to today. That's why they say the ship is the same and the ship is not the same. And that's why they are vision and they are not vision. At the very end of Hex Vision's existence... He asks Wanda, you know, what am I? He still has not grappled with his magical nature. And Wanda offers a very emotional and satisfying answer that is part spiritual and part material. She says he's bone and wire and blood. 
but she also says he is heart and soul and love incarnate. And in that, we all have to wrestle with these philosophical quandaries at some point in time. And we do so in many different ways. What's amazing isn't that vision, hex vision and white vision reconcile completely the problem of Theseus's ship. What matters is at the end, both visions come to a sense of self that works subjectively for themselves, a sense of self that allows them to process what they have gone through, gives them permission to say goodbye and to say hello. Beautiful. They're both the true vision because they believe themselves to be. Anything else? That is all I got. This has been a great conversation. What a great show. I can't wait to see what comes next for these characters. I hope that Marvel, like I said earlier, I hope Marvel takes this opportunity to really grow and change what they're able to offer. Also, just got to throw out some love for uh, for the Lopez's, for Bobby and Kristen Anderson Lopez's, for the incredible music and the theme music for the beginning of every episode. Just two total geniuses who were on board, along with all of the other creative people who made such interesting choices for every single episode. Definitely watch the Assembled documentary if you haven't yet on Disney+. Plus. Uh, but yeah, I have really enjoyed this. And until next time, be kind. And I killed Sparky too. ha <laughs> ha!